Welcome back to this week's edition of The Deeper Cut, a podcast ministry of Mercy Hill Presbyterian Church. I am Tim Pasek of Rolling Elder at Mercy Hill, and I'm joined as always by my fellow elder and our pastor, Phil Henry, in our beautiful studio in, in Pittman, New Jersey. How are you doing today, Phil? Doing great, Tim. Thanks for being here this morning, and thanks everybody for tuning in. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and thanks to all of our listeners. Um, it's been well, actually only two weeks since our last recording, and we had a guest preacher last week. So, um, but I feel like so much has changed. I uh, I come this morning with one extra kid in my house, um, and we weren't sure if we were going to be able to record this week because today would have been would have been scheduled the scheduled due date, right, uh, for my son Caleb. But he decided to surprise us um, just shy of two weeks ago. So thank you, Caleb, for coming early and allowing your dad to record this podcast this morning. <laughs> and congratulations to the Pasek family on thank the you. new addition. Thank you. Thank you. He's Allie. gone from being a son in utero to ex-utero, <laughs> <laughs> which makes him an excellent son. Yes. Yes. As we all are in that regard. Um, uh, just funny aside, on my way out the door this morning, I was like, if you have a chance, maybe after the recording today, to, to mention to Phil that we want to make sure that we, we want to start talking about baptism for Caleb. I'm like, I'm pretty sure Phil knows that that's, uh, you know, in the coming plans. We have a little bit of time. He's yeah. not two weeks old yet, sweetheart. Well, <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> with, the, with my firstborn, I was determined to have her baptized on the eighth day. And when I told my pastor this, he just rolled his eyes at me. <laughs> what would your response be to someone who came to you with that request? I would roll my eyes at him. Yeah. yeah. I would. But when, my, when I got eyes rolled at me, I was furious. <laughs> <laughs> because I was right. Yeah. Yes, uh... Well, we've we've already surpassed the eighth day, so that's wow, he's behind us. But clearly, his baptism has lost yeah. at least a third of its value. This is like a an option in the uh, in in the in the markets. You you know, its value is decreasing as we speak. <laughs> you need to you need to put a stop call on that. Yeah, well, it'll be okay. I'm okay with it. Our first was baptized, we're, we're way off course already, but our first um, child, Rebecca, she was baptized the same day I was ordained hmm. as an elder, um, which was a pretty cool day. That is a cool the day. family. So, yeah. anywho, um, I'll try to bring us back on course here. So, we're continuing in First in Peter, as we have been, we're all the way in chapter four, this is the third sermon you've done in chapter four, I believe. That sounds correct, right? Mm -hmm. And the 21st sermon that you've preached thus far in, in the series. In, in the series. So we're... Coming to an end. Yes. Well, we're going to take a little hiatus. Um, I think you're not going to finish till end of summer, right? Right. Probably. So the, um, as you put it, the First Peter tangential, or First Peter, what was your phrase? The... Uh, First Peter related series mm -hmm. on uh, elders. Mm -hmm. We'll have five sermons in July. 
on the role of the elder, which will be kind of teeing up my sermon on 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, in which Peter calls us as fellow under-shepherds to love the flock. Mm -hmm. And it's a chance for Mercy Hill elders to share with the church their convictions about their role, their office of elder. It's also uh, kind of a little nudge for the elders to keep growing in their understanding of their role. You know, we, we often don't grow unless we're given an assignment. That's why all, all, most all professions have continuing education requirements because they're requirements because we just get lazy and we, mm-hmm. we tend to live off of yesterday's manna when the well needs to be dug uh, deeper still to to mix two metaphors. Hmm. So I'm I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be a rich time of learning for our elders and for the church, and uh, an inspiring one too. Yeah, I'm lo- I'm looking forward to it, and I think Will's kicking us off this upcoming week. I yes, believe. he is. So yes, he is. He's he's got a good one queued up I, from what I can tell. Keep Will in your prayers if you're part of the Mercy Hill family um, this week as he prepares to exhort God's Word mm-hmm. to us on Sunday. Mm-hmm. But um, your sermon from this past week is before us today, and uh, as I already mentioned, it's the third in chapter four, and it's kind of squarely focused on um, trials, or Peter's take on trials within the Christian life, um, if I'm painting with a broad stroke. Yeah, kind of a second or a third take. I mean, it's a it's a singular theme in the in the epistle. It's known in the New Testament as the most concentrated look at suffering. Uh, explicit, yeah, topically concentrated focus on suffering. Is that primarily, you think, because of the audience he was writing to. I do. I mean, that's why it kind of goes hand in hand. We'll there. see in chapter five that he's writing from Babylon, which is code name for Rome. Mm to the exiles in Asia Minor. This is probably, maybe it's Antioch, maybe it's some of the churches in the northern Asia Minor region of Galatia. Um, There's some thinking that these are congregations, Jewish Gentile congregations, probably primarily Gentile congregations that Peter himself either planted or evangelized and churches were planted in those areas Hmm. and so peter is with one letter is doing what paul does with 13. (laughs) (laughs) well paul has a lot to get off his chest he does peter's a little bit more uh succinct yes he is he learned he my how you've grown peter he learned a lot over over the years didn't he? yeah i'll be honest there's been more than one time particularly doing this podcast with you in First Peter, when I've thought, this guy was a fisherman. Like, he was a fisherman. Right. And you think, you know, there's been a couple of moments when you've helped show, you know, man, this is one of the most deep, rich passages in the New Testament. You know, there, there's the section where he, he has how many Old Testament quotes in, like, two verses I know. or three verses. Yeah. He was a fisherman. Right. Right. Uh, my answer to that, uh, well, first of all, you're not alone to notice that. Second of all, the conclusion that some people draw is Peter couldn't have written it. Oh, that's not the con- Let me go on record. Uh, that I'm, is not the conclusion I'm making. I know. Um, 
I don't think um, I don't think pseudonymity is a requirement. Denying pseudonymity is not a requirement for salvation, but it does tend to be the thin ed, the thin side of the wedge for biblical compromise, mm-hmm. from what I've seen. But you know, if we're talking like a technical scholarly argument. You can deny that James wrote James or Peter wrote Peter and still believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for my sins and so forth. Uh, I happen to think that, that other than the epistle to the Hebrews, we know the authors of all the letters in the New Testament. And um, Hebrews does present a challenge in that regard. We, we're not sure who wrote it, mm-hmm. but we receive it as sacred scripture. But we're not going to go down the rabbit trail of canonicity i don't think <laughs> this not, early on in the podcast point. No, that was not point, point being though peter uh, a lot of people ask the question about peter and my answer is uh my grandpa's eighth grade education kicks your bachelor of arts in in the tush <laughs> you know if you've seen these old and i've got a couple on my book kind of on my on my bookshelf uh grammar grammar quizzes for high school students and it was published in 1910 and you look at it and the things they're asked to learn as a as a beginning high school student in 1910 right truly college students today just don't know Mm -hmm. and it isn't just because they're irrelevant it's that we just have stopped asking that much of people Hmm. so i think the the other part is how did calvin write so much or luther or any of these great guys well they didn't have electricity how do they do it with less just in the daylight hours and candles for crying out loud? I'm like, well, they didn't have electricity. So yeah. there's something about the slower pace of life, a more agrarian society, agricultural based society that was more humane. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the whole rigors of the Jewish education system in terms of m- emphasis on memorization and, and having walked with Jesus three years, uh, how could you put a value on that and add to that probably his his own motivation to to learn mm-hmm. galilean um palestinian jews in the first century were surprisingly cosmopolitan so he's probably multilingual to begin with let alone uh not not ed, not educated in the rabbinical system certainly that's where acts 4 comes in where they see him as an unschooled an right. ordinary fisherman. That doesn't mean he was stupid or, or uneducated. It just means he, he hadn't gone through the proper channels to kind of get a license to preach in right. uh, downtown Jerusalem. <laughs> well, I was just trying to compare him to, to Paul. Oh, and well. And Paul wrote 13, you know. Right. Peter said in one what Paul took 13 That's to do, true. basically. That's so, true. Um, anyway. Well, I think we get the, the most beautiful picture of Peter in the letter comes in my next sermon, which will be in a month, where he breaks frame and he directly speaks with reference to himself to the elders mm. in the churches to which he writes. Mm. And um, I'm excited about that. But what did you think about this sermon, an unexpected guest? I, th- I thought it was... Was it expected? <laughs> Um, I thought that it was a great sermon, Phil, and 
the thing I appreciated most about this, and I've already shared this with you this morning, but for all of our listeners out there, um, a sermon on fiery trials being focused on joy, um, I thought was, was great because I'm inclined speaking personally here to focus on the trials and to neglect to consider what God is commanding me to do from Peter, which is, um, to not be surprised and to welcome them with joy. And so I'm, I'm more worried about, well, how do I, how do I just get through this or how do I avoid the, and you kind of address this right at the beginning in your, in your intro. I mean, you basically called out the church and said, you're not ready to hear what I'm going to tell you. I mean, you literally said that. I did. And, and you were right. You were right in that sense. So it was, it was unexpected, even for us, I think, um, in that regard, the sermon itself. But it was very, it was very good and very um, convicting, but not in like a, I went home. Didn't you know, feel beat up, hopefully. No, no, I, I didn't walk out with, with bruises or, you know broken ribs or, or anything like that, but certainly challenged to, um, on a couple of different levels to not just, um, acquiesce or sit, or sit back, um, and, uh, and to also not be so downtrodden mm-hmm. for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I wear that as a badge of honor. You know, I don't know whether that's because I'm Presbyterian or I'm a male or if it's a bunch of different things, but I'm like, oh, yeah, trials, all right. You know, I'll get through this one and I'm going to praise God for it. And, you know, we like to think, uh, well, you know, the, the Bible says that that's good and God works through our trials and we should welcome our trials. And so I'm like, oh, I'm just going to like, be the strong man, you know, standing in the storm, mm-hmm. just not being moved. Mm-hmm. And that's not really the picture that Peter is painting here. No. At all. But that's what goes in my head, like how I have to approach my, my trials. So, yeah, it was, it was unexpected, but in, in a very pleasant um, way. So you did address this also earlier when we were chatting off air, but do you think it was warranted from the text? Mm. And... Um, because that's ultimately what we, we want to know. Uh, it, it, and as you're opening your Bible and composing your thoughts on that, let me give a reason why I think it's an important question. It, it, it wouldn't be surprising if a pastor took a topic like trials and pulling a rabbit out of the hat said, this is really about joy. And <laughs> in doing so effectively avoided a difficult topic that people don't want to hear about. Yeah. So um, the kind of turning the tables and saying what you thought was about trials is really about joy. That's, that's a, 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 sadly, it's an all too frequent indication of compromise from the pulpit and pastors actually not doing the work of, and it is work, to bring a hard message to God's people rather than just bring in an easy one, which is obviously easier to do. So is it, was it a warranted focus? Yeah. So, and, and you, 
you, you said this, so any of you who have listened to the sermon already would know that Phil answered his own question in the, in the sermon, but for the sake, maybe you missed it, or just as a reminder, verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So three times in one verse, Peter talks about joy. So he's drawing our attention to it. Yeah. But that in and of itself probably isn't enough to say these seven verses are really about joy. Uh, what about the word surprise? Yeah, well, yeah, so you beat me to it. Verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice. So, um, you know, and even if you go down further, and these aren't the exact words of joy or surprise, but yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, in verse 16, let him not be ashamed, but mm-hmm. let him glorify God mm-hmm. in that True. In that name. So that, that definitely fits the category of joy. I, I, it's all here. It's not like you're picking out, you know, pulling out something that suits your own a, agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, and frankly, that's one of the things that I appreciate. And I've said this in this podcast f- for previous sermons. You're like, you, I think you've done a great job in this series, Phil, of letting Peter preach Peter. Mm-hmm. Essentially, mm-hmm. so not just putting Phil Henry's commentary on Peter, but what is Peter actually saying to the church? What is he saying to us? Mm-hmm. I mean, you you set that up in the sermon yesterday. You know, what was he saying to the people he was talking to, and what does it mean for us? Because we live in a completely different context now. Mm-hmm. Thus, we're not prepared <laughs> to hear what he has to say. Um, and I don't know whether the original hearers were that prepared either, but I think we're less prepared than they probably were. I think so. Yeah. Unprepared in a, in a different way, but definitely less prepared. Um, I was grabbing at this image in the message. I think what I was trying to say is that the general Christian culture that we've inherited, which is you know, quickly dissipating, we're, we're now spending down the principle faster than we can keep track of it mm-hmm. if we're talking about an investment you know mm-hmm. if you're spending the interest the principle re- remains untouched but once you start spending the principle that that savings dwindles quickly and um, so whatever Christian capital or investment that we've received from our parents and grandparents and forefathers going back you know hundreds of years we're we're quickly approaching uh, um, spending it to zero. So, but the the image that I was reaching for in the in the message was the kind of the lukewarm Christian culture that whatever remains in our society as a lukewarm kind of cultural broth. It's you know the chicken soup's been sitting on the counter for twenty minutes after dinner. It's not very appetizing, but it's there. Um, kind of has shielded us to our response, our pe- responsibility to be a peculiarly holy people mm. amidst an, an unusually pagan culture. That part of it was much easier for Peter's readers and hearers to appreciate. Yeah. They were being called atheists and 
because of the name Christian, which comes up in our text, verse 16, they were being pointed out and asked, is this your name? Then this is what's happening to you. You know, you're going to be kicked out, removed, killed, uh, interrogated, and so forth. People aren't searching us out for being Christians, or maybe they are. Maybe we're starting to see that. Mm. It's an unusual time we're in. Uh, see, it yeah. feels like it's a sea, there's a sea change go, afoot. Yeah, but it's not like people are searching out Christians for being Christians. They're searching out, they have a problem with what Christians do. Mm-hmm. Or think. Right. But even that, if you never told people you thought it, then it, like no one would ask. You know, you know right. what I mean? Right. So it's not like, oh, well, you're a Christian, so there's a problem. It's, well, you're a Christian, so either shut up about it, and you're wrong, but if you're quiet about it, then whatever. But as soon as you try to... Um, kind of live out your life as a mm-hmm. Christian, mm-hmm. then if that's a problem. If there's any explicit implications of your faith, right. besides going to ShopRite and buying some, you know, snacks for for the the party. Right. And even that could, could end up getting you in trouble somehow. I'm thinking of that um, the case before the Supreme Court right now about the web designer who didn't want to do the design for the the um, same-sex marriage, mm. and the argument is, well, you know, the the defense is, well, that's infringing upon her free speech, basically, you know, for her to decline her services for somebody. Mm-hmm. It's we we've seen this multiple iterations mm-hmm. of this, um, yeah, with different texts. Anyway, I don't want to turn this into, you know, but comparing the cultural problem. milieu of Peter's readers and ours is is uh was a super important aspect of the message yesterday um i was particularly helped by tim keller's analysis he's not the best but it was the easiest one that was available to me and and one that i'd been studying in our school of discipleship over this last semester and uh kind of low-hanging fruit i mean his his description of the cultural problem when it comes to suffering was succinct and I think penetrating. Can I ask a question about the suffering that Peter talks about here? Yes. Do you think that he's referring to any and all suffering? How would you define the suffering and the trials that Peter is talking about? Right? Is it broad in scope that any suffering or is it, because I read it as Christian suffering, suffering for the, the sake latter. Of, of Christ. So the it's latter. not like, oh, you know, um, Job cuts, I lost my job. It had nothing to do with the fact that you were a Christian and you spoke out against the boss who, That's right. you know, That's was right. doing evil things. So the trials in chapter 1 are more general in nature. The trials in chapter 4 are more specific in nature. The specific nature of chapter 4's trials are suffering as a Christian. Um, and... It's differentiated from suffering because you've sinned and you're receiving either right. cultural or natural consequences of your sinful behavior. 
So the general trials that say to all people are subject to, like, you know, broad, you know, far-reaching cutbacks in your company that leads to, you know, broad layoffs that hit Christians and non-Christians alike, and we're going to model that sort of trouble received in a uniquely Christian way that our non-Christians will like, well, why do you, how can you handle the, the, the layoffs with such equanimity and, and trust and with a good sense of you? How can you do that? You know, mm -hmm. what is it about you that makes you so different? Mm -hmm. Whose God do you worship? You know, <laughs> uh, that, so that's not what it is. It's that when you, when you, uh, differentiate yourself because you are a Christian. This is Daniel territory. It's the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego right. in the fiery furnace. It's that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't ring that bell super clearly on Sunday, partly because I just didn't feel I had the time, I guess, but maybe it was an omission. What do you think? I mean, I think it's, to me, it seems pretty clear. It's kind of obvious. You know, uh, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. And then also in 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian. Um, rejoice that you bear that name. Right. Uh, or however it puts it there. Where is it? The end of 16. Yeah, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. In that name. Yep. So that phrase, in that name, is, is quite specific. It's saying that um, the suffering that you're receiving is suffering because you are known to be someone who has the name Christian. Right. I think it's an... I didn't feel like it was an omission from your sermon, but I bring it up mostly because... That is a distinction that Peter's making. Not that, not to say that as Christians we shouldn't handle other types of suffering differently than the world around us, but specifically what Peter's talking about here, it brings to mind a couple of other questions, like if I'm not suffering <laughs> in that way, then what does that say? Right, because he's pretty clear. Do not be surprised at the trial when it comes to test you. Well, that's an assumption that that's they're the, coming. The nor it's the normal the Christian norm. life. Right. In Peter's time, was to suffer because you are known to be a Christian, and in our society, because of our again broad Christian heritage, that's not the norm. But increasingly, it is. So that's where the if if the, we're willing to let that be the case. Yeah, it's still possible to keep your head down and not be known as a Christian, right? It's kind of what you're saying. Yeah. So I guess you know if if you were to take take it as a subset of suffering, right? Christian suffering, suffering for the sake and in the name of Christ as a subsection of all suffering mm -hmm. that we experience. I would say, and I don't want to speak on behalf of all, of all believers here, but for me, I think when I'm thinking about suffering in my life, I am mostly thinking about General sickness, suffering. pain, you know, like... Loss. You know, yeah, just kind of um, the... 
the the results and the effects of the fall, right? And and some of that obviously is brought upon about by my sin or other people's sin. Some of it is kind of sin in in general, mm-hmm. the, the curse itself in creation. Um, but I am not often primarily thinking about the suffering that Peter is talking about here. Um, and while I, I experienced that to some degree, um, I don't think I experienced it to the ex- to the point where, like, don't be surprised when it comes because you're going to experience it all the time. You know, I, you know what? I, I don't know how to be more eloquent. In no, that. I think I think you've done it. I mean, the specific word is insofar as, mm-hmm. you know, or as, or to the degree that from the text. Right. Verse 13. Right. It just, may, it, you know, it brings up this other question in my mind of, well, hold on a second. If I'm not really experiencing this kind of suffering, then what is, you know, I need to probably take a look at how I'm living my life here. Because even though I'm not part of the first century church in Asia Minor, the world is against God. It's, it still is against God. So I do think there's some, there's some reflection and um, some deep introspection and evaluation called for, mm. which the way I uh, attacked that need from the pulpit, attack maybe isn't the right word, the way I tried to address that need from the pulpit is by asking Mercy Hill and our listeners to to avoid the sin of presumption and make sure that you're born again. Hmm. Um, which is called assurance of salvation, something that should be pursued and confirmed. I won't say how frequently it sort of depends on the person. Some people struggle with reviewing that too frequently. In other words, you can, in an attempt to avoid the sin of presumption, which means the sin of presuming that I'm saved without grounds, some people go over the, over the top and fall into an anxiety about their salvation, which commits the sin of unbelief in the sufficiency of Christ for poor sinners such as me to hold on to me in spite of my difficulty in holding on to him. So I I made the pastoral judgment that what our church needed to hear was a challenge against sinning presumptively upon our salvation. And then an appeal from verse 19 to unconditionally hand our lives over to God without qualification, without reservation. And that that one-two... Those one two, that's kind of a one two punch, or those kind of uh, first and second responses to this text and to the Spirit's teaching in the text would ensure 
if you're listening carefully with a heart open to God, it would ensure that your life is going to be as distinctive as it needs to be. Yeah. And you don't need to work at it. It will happen. Mm -hmm. If you've confirmed that you're saved, that you're a born-again believer, you're filled with the Holy Spirit of God and united to the, the Godhead, the triune God, by the Holy Spirit, and you've unconditionally turned your life over to God, the distinctiveness that you need will will take place. Hmm. Uh, pursuing distinctiveness, I think, can get us into trouble. Like, I'm going to be distinctive in my testimony. Now, I think there's a time and a place to, to pursue distinctiveness. I'm going to make sure I talk to somebody today about Jesus. That, that makes sense. I, I'm, I've reached a limit at, at my job where I can no longer go along with that policy. I need to be distinctive today in, in the in the meeting of the department heads or whatever. Um, so, but there's so many different aspects to that. I think what what I could do as the preacher is say, are you a believer? Have you unconditionally surrendered your life to God? Then he'll take care of the rest. Hmm. Yeah, I think... Um... Looking at 19, verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So, um, you don't have to go out and start trouble for the sake of being distinct or letting people know. But it doesn't mean that you sit back and are quiet all the time. Right. Or put your head in the sand. Right. So Peter's not saying pull back, <laughs> you know. In fact, he's kind of been saying the exact opposite this this whole time. You know, be distinct in the way that you view your relationships with the civil magistrate. Be distinct in the way that you work out your marriage. Right. Mm -hmm. Things that we've talked about in chapters two and three. Um be distinct in the way that you're in community with other Christians. Right. So it's not a, it's not a, um, this is not a, let's all kind of hide or kind of retreat um, into our churches. Peter's, I think, really speaking about how do you continue to go forward where you are as a Christian, submitting to Christ, finding joy in that union with Christ. Mm -hmm. um, and, you, and you can't do it aside from that. So that was a helpful little uh, conversation there, because I th I appreciate the caution to not fall off the other side of the horse, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. To use to use that euphemism. So, um, so the that's two a good, that's a good reminder. The two sides of the horse are what to kind of sum um, that up. Yeah. So you're distinctive enough in Christ, right? So if if you're if you're um. If you've tested your salvation in a way, right, and you're 
relying on Christ and the Holy Spirit is at work in progressively sanctifying you. God's given you everything you need. And honor God and be faithful to his word. And that's, that's enough. That's sufficient. You don't have to go above and beyond. You don't have to go pick fights for the sake of picking fights. And in fact, you might even jump so far as to say in verse 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, so Peter's setting those apart. So he's saying, <coughs> be and a Christian. The, and the ESV says, as a meddler? As a meddler. Okay. Yeah. Because the, the Greek could be rendered, or even as a meddler. Mm. Meaning like we've got th three s serious things, and then one seemingly lightweight Less. thing, yeah. which shouldn't be discounted as qualifying as the sort of, as incurring upon you the sort of suffering that I'm talking about, which, which does not meet the standard as the suffering of Christ or in as much as you're suffering with Christ, which is what it says in verse 13. Just as is how I have it. Just as you share mm -hmm. in as much as if, if the sufferings we're talking about is you sharing in a spiritual community with the messianic sufferings, if that's what we're talking about, then you can rejoice. We're not talking about suffering for doing wrong, those three things that you mentioned. Even meddling, which I've heard some of you are doing. Right. Or I'm not sure if you're doing it, but make sure you don't do that. So the two sides of the horse, Tim, that, that I'm hearing here are part of our Christian duty is to keep our head down, keep our mouth shut, and be invisible. That's actually part of our duty. Honor the emperor. Uh, wives, submit to your unbelieving husbands. Slaves, take the beating. I know that's a controversial, a culturally controversial statement, but do not pursue justice. Be quiet and go along to get along. Um, this isn't your country. It's not a Christian nation. And you are not the justice warrior whose job it is to fix everything. You're a citizen of another country, and you are here as an alien and an exile and someone who is disper dispersed from your true homeland. Actually, you are home, but everybody doesn't know that yet. The meek will inherit the earth. This is your planet. But as Abraham dwelt in the promised land, in a tent as a stranger, because it wasn't his home yet. And that's your job, Hebrews 11, 8 and 9. So there the meddling that is being warned of, to me, does throw a bit of a speed bump on some of the activism that I see in the Christian community on the left, kind of a progressive pursuit of justice in every and all spheres mm. of human injustice. And on the right, um, you know, taking down the White House. So... I'm seeing meddling as being a potential and, and both 
both kind of of those stereotyped Christian camps are suffering because of their witness from unbelievers. So their witness to the pagan society, non-Christian society, secular society, and they're, they're taking their lumps for going after it in different ways. Um, I would say probably that right-wing Christian witness is taking more lumps from secular society than the left-wing Christian witness. Mm -hmm. The left-wing Christian witness, what I'm seeing is the progressive Christian witness, they're counting the lumps that they're taking from the evangelical church, in their mind, the evangelical church, as being they're suffering for the name of Christ because the church has lost its way and it doesn't see its job as to right the wrongs in the world. So, uh, and they're getting pats on the back from, from secularists and, and skeptics and, and uh, kind of the elite power brokers in society that are setting up, you know, the new structures of, of right and wrong. So, you know, keeping your head down and focusing on living a quiet life of godliness is part of the challenge here. Just like Jesus didn't want himself to be known for a while. Mm. Like he, he, if you read Mark, the, the so-called Mark in secret is yeah. the idea that the demons were silenced, that the, the, the paralytic was told not to tell anybody and, and you know, the man, the, the epileptic was, was told to be quiet. And, but by the time he gets to Jerusalem in Mark 10 and 11, he's like, no holds barred. Yep. That's, yep. That's me. I'm yeah. the one. Yeah. So there's a time and a place to rise up and to be known as a Christian for holding the name of Christ. And there's a time to do quiet acts of faithfulness. And I'm not sure what time we live in right now, speaking broadly. Mm. And I'm not sure what time you live in as my friend, speaking narrowly. But I tend to know in my own life when I'm quiet and I should speak up, I tend to know that with, with shame. Hmm. I'm ashamed of myself. Mm -hmm. And when I speak up, when I should have been quiet, I also feel ashamed of myself. But those are imperfect measurements. Um, but it is, uh, this hopefully helps you and helps our listeners see the, the profound challenge that this text presents to us. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, if, if I was going to try to boil it down to an answer, I think it's um, I think it's simple faith and faithfulness is what it boils down to. Meaning, and not not to make it like so so uh, diluted that it means nothing, but going back to what you kind of said maybe 15, 20 minutes ago at this point, um, if, if we're seeking to follow Christ and honor the Lord and be sanctified in all areas of our life, then God's going God's gonna to 
use that and do that for us, meaning we don't have to kind of get out over our own skis in order to to kind of make decisions on our own of what we should or shouldn't do. And if we fail to make a good decision, then our conscience should be pricked by the Holy Spirit, the shame that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And that that's a, a call to repentance. And repentance isn't just, sorry, I screwed up. It's, I screwed up and I'm going to put on righteousness mm-hmm. going forward, you know. Did, did the theme of God's will come out in the message, knowing the importance of knowing God's will? Um, I don't know if I would say, I mean, my, my having to hearken back to, to think about it makes me think that at least to me, it it didn't hit hard, at least thematically speaking. So, uh, read first Peter four nineteen, which mentions the will of God. Yeah. Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now read 317 which we talked about three or four weeks ago. 317 is for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. More general suffering is being addressed there rather than the specifically Christian kind in 419. But I was kind of playing both sides of that line in this sermon by not being super, super explicitly specific about Christian suffering. A, I think it's obvious in the text. B, I didn't really know how to develop it within the context of that message, given the other things that I thought were important to Mm -hmm. address. But discerning the will of God... Knowing the will of God is an integral and crucial ingredient for suffering correctly. So what is the will of God for my life, for our church? And how do we discern God's will when it comes to these things? One of my thoughts is we need the community. We can't just try to discern on our own, independent of the church. But sometimes the church won't let her sons suffer. In fact, sometimes the church punishes her own when they step out and suffer according to God's will and they come to the church for uh, you know, the mass unit, which is the hospital just behind the front lines. They come to the church for healing and bandaging and consolation and the church punishes the prophets that God raises up to suffer according to God's will. And the church is like, no, you're rocking the boat. And so sometimes we find individuals that are called to suffer uh, as Christians, according to God's will, operating outside the church because the church has not done a good job of cultivating a missional orientation towards the prevailing unbelief in society. Mm. And, uh, or an all too... Uh, all too accommodating posture towards society's idolatry. On the other hand, some of these erstwhile prophets, meaning not true prophets, think they're prophets just because they're being antagonistic and saying things that the church doesn't want them to say. And um, God loves his church, 
and he's given us the church so that the prophets that are sent out from us have the full backing, sort of like a, a government bond, you know. They have the full backing of the United States government. And now, speaking in terms of the ages of history, the United States government is nothing. But in the current financial world, mm -hmm. the dollar is king. <laughs> Everything's traded in dollars. So you want a solid investment, invest in the United States government. And that, that, that sounds funny to hear from a pastor saying that. I'm, not, <laughs> I'm just using it as an illustration, yeah, we're, we're folks. We're not making so. financial advice here. No, and, and <laughs> neither am I you know, going on record as sort of thinking that this country is kind of the pinnacle of the development of all of civil... I mean, I love our country, and I love our financial system. I think it's incredibly well-designed, and there's a lot of uh, wisdom to it. But the point being is the church is the one that underwrites her prophetic ministry. Right. So knowing God's will, Tim, is really the work of the church. Uh, and it's going to be an imperfect process. We're going to censure our members, our, our, our brothers and sisters who are suffering for Christ wrongly. We're going to ignore them. We're going to downplay it and say, well, they shouldn't, they shouldn't have done that. And I think uh, miss an opportunity to share in the sufferings of the Messiah. But I also think there are times when we're going to stick our neck out and get involved and meddle in mask mandates, maybe, where we just need to leave well enough alone. And I mention that because, you know, that kind of the, one of the big elephants in the room for the church in the last three and a half years has been the whole COVID debacle and the church's response to it. And when Polly and I first saw COVID rolling around, we thought, this is going to be great for the church. It's really going to give us a tremendous opportunity to witness, and we're going to shine like the light of the Son of God. And three and a half years later, my assessment is the church COVID was a scourge in the church that exposed our weaknesses almost in every area and has left us... Um, almost like the emperor with, with no clothes on. So when, when it comes to the, like the, you know, the, the mask mandate, those who just went right along with these civil injunctions to wear mask, and then those who defied all civil injunctions as being kind of a violation of the, of the first commandment or the second commandment. Like, you know, this is the civil magistrate meddling with our order of worship and essentially giving us a prayer book that we have to use. And our, our church, as you know, we, we tried to avoid both of those extremes and wound up offending everyone in the process. <laughs> Yep, yep. But it, it was our attempt to keep our head down, to stick to our business, to make decisions based on scripture, not based on the latest governor's pronouncements. And I think, I mean, at least as someone who is trying to lead our board of elders, I was trying to help us navigate First Peter four twelve to 19 in a way that 
didn't fall off either side of the horse. Yeah. And I was right with you. Yeah. I mean, I think we all were. It's, um, I don't know, I look at it as, uh, I think the offenses, I use air quotes there. I mean, not that they weren't real. They felt real to some people, I think. Not that they were intended. But I think those probably would have inevitably worked out, worked themselves out in some form or fashion. Maybe in, in a more extreme... COVID or exposed us in that way, right? In a more extreme or more um, unfortunate circumstance than, than COVID. So I look at it a little bit like a blessing in that regard. Um, it's like, you know, if you take your car in for an inspection and it fails, I'd rather it fail there than on the highway going 80 miles an hour. You know, that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time... I think it was a good lesson for the church, for our church, in um, Christian unity as we're united to Christ, you know? Right. And also, you know, taking it more specifically into what we're talking about today, um, I think there are things, in my opinion, that... um, God would prick my conscience into saying, I need to, I need to make a distinctive, I need to be distinct here. Mm -hmm. And there are other things where I go, I don't think that this is the right thing to do. It's not the suffering of the Messiah in in some cases. Right. And that doesn't mean that we won't suffer because of those decisions, but I think that's where, you know, you're talking about the will of God. That happens in the church. Exactly. This is exactly my point. And so as elders, we were trying to discern the will of God in putting sufferings in two baskets. One, suffering in as much as we share in the sufferings of our Messiah. And two, suffering as meddlers. And I wanted to read, I I think we're running out of time here, but I wanted to read our... um, uh, one commentary's description of that unusual word, which, as you pointed out in our in our conversation before the recording, I didn't touch on this word <laughs> in the sermon, and this is probably me keeping my head down and avoiding suffering. So the, the, yeah. So the word you're talking about is meddlers or meddling. Right, that's right. And, and it stuck out to me when you were reading the passage because, as I think, at least your probably more accurate translation of of that verse, or even as meddlers mm-hmm. i looked at it and went well, how's that fit with murderers and you know the first three you know what i mean right it doesn't it doesn't fit and that's why i went oh i wonder what phil's gonna say about me or as a meddler what was it suffer as a murderer a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler and i went hmm i wonder if there's gonna be some i'm ready with my pen to take a note down on that one and uh here, I'll get so, my pen out. Okay, so <laughs> if you read the verse, there's two as's. You want me to pull it back up? Sure. So the first as is as a murderer, as a murderer. Yeah. thief, and evildoer. Correct, yep. And then there's a second as, or as, is okay. that how? Yes, that's how the ESV translates. So to say or as begs the question, why, is, why isn't why is it just four items without a, 
an additional as. So this is deep structure analysis that isn't suitable for the pulpit. No, but it's good Bible study. It's a good Bible study. So when you see two as's in a sequence of four, the second as differentiating the fourth and final, the final term mm -hmm. and, the, and the only term who's differentiated with its own you know, simile sort of symbol as, you have to ask, well, what... Clearly, the author intends this one word to be separated from the other three. And I think it's separated from the other three because it's the least expected of the three, because the first three are obvious indicators of why suffering would not be uh, categorized as messianic suffering. So what is a meddler? The Greek word is, uh, it's a difficult word to pronounce. <laughs> Even for you? Even for me. Allotriepiscopos. Allotrip episcopos, if you run it all together. Yeah. So episcopos means an overseer or someone who watches out for things. Mm -hmm. And the prefix allotri or allo means other or strange or different. And I actually pulled out my, not my Greek New Testament dictionary, but my Greek dictionary, like for all of Greek literature. And there is a decided practice in the ancient Greek language, going back to Homer, of attaching the allotri prefix to literally hundreds of words. Hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a way of speaking in Greek. And this particular allotri term is quite rare. It's nowhere else in the New Testament. And it's only one or two other places in Greek literature. And allotri episkopos. It's a, someone who looks out over or watches over other men or other people or other people's behavior or activities or, or practices. And it's a negative. Most of the allotri words in Greek are negative. Hmm. Um, so someone who is involved in a stranger's affairs is a meddler. Hmm. That's how the ESV got there. Gotcha. But what exactly are we talking about here? One, one scholar said, maybe it's a revolutionary. So hence the January 6th point. Those individuals, besides breaking laws and not acting with the authority of a magistrate, presuming that they didn't have their city mayor or their state governor authorizing this, you know, this is Calvin's definition of a revel of an un invalid revolution is it's not authorized by a lawfully elected magistrate. So that it's sinful for that reason, but it's also sinful in the sense that if that's what the word means, they're meddling in the affairs that are not their own. They're acting as a revolutionary. They're, they're involving themselves unlawfully in the, in the affairs of another. But I don't think it means revolutionary. I think it means um, getting out of our lane, hmm. which is a little less of a threshold than a revolutionary. So one, this, this scholar who I don't particularly care for in First Peter, but this is how he defines the Elotri Episcopos. Censuring the behavior of outsiders on the basis to, of claims to a higher authority, interfering with family relationships, fomenting domestic discontent and discord 
or tactless attempts at conversion. So there's, there's a call by forbidding meddling. There's a call to a witness that minimizes offense when possible that I think Peter has stressed in this letter. You're living in exile. This is, a, this is a diaspora letter, so our closest biblical comparison is Jeremiah 29, a diaspora letter in the Old Testament. Jeremiah is writing a letter to the exiles in Babylon. This is how you should behave. Buy houses, live in them, settle in them. Marry, give your daughters in marriage. For in the prosperity of the city of your exile, you will be blessed. As that city is blessed, you will be blessed. And this is just blowing the minds of the Jews in exile because mm -hmm. they're living amongst pagans who need... They're, they, they're, there's no chance of them being converted. Our main mission here is to keep from being polluted. And Jeremiah is pushing them into the pagan society, including marriage. So... That's the context that Peter, Peter's adopting this, this literary um, device called a diaspora letter in writing First Peter. And he's saying, don't suffer as a meddler. Stop get going out of your lane. Uh, I don't think it's going so far as to say the church is spiritual. So we don't have a political voice here. Mm -hmm. But he's saying something that's going to make us uncomfortable because it's the fourth item in a list of three or four that are obvious. Three are obvious, one is less obvious. So what does meddler mean? What are your thoughts on this, Tim? I feel like it's the gotcha. Because I read it and I go, all right, murderer, thief, evildoer. My mind doesn't immediately go, oh, he's talking about me. Yeah. But then his, or a meddler. And I go, oh, is that me? Is you know, it, it, do I do that? Yeah, and then it it's makes good... you ask the question. Well, what does that mean? And you know, that's why when I when you were reading the passage and you read that verse, I went, "Ooh, I wonder what I was going to say right. about that." Because it immediately occurred to me, "All right, those first three, they don't really like hit." It's like the arrows flew right by me. Right. Basically, that one, that one got awfully close to my ear. I, yeah, I I heard it and I felt the breeze as it went by. I went, "Ooh, I I wonder if that one," and. I, I do feel that I missed an opportunity there, but whether it's through cowardice or not wanting to meddle, I don't know. But um, I, I, I attempted to do what I could with the clarity that I had, and um, I, I, I hoped and, and sort of planned on saving some of my thoughts on the meddlesome word of meddler for our podcast today. Well, that worked out. And I don't think that you, you missed at all, or, or um, we've said this before, no sermon is going to be all-encompassing for, even if it was one verse, and mm -hmm. you've preached on one verse many times, mm -hmm. you can't even say everything that you possibly could say about one verse. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's just, um, you lean into the Spirit's leading into what you believe God wants our church to hear, because you're preaching to our church, to people in our pews, to yourself first and foremost, as you always said, you're always the first hearer. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, there's always more that could be said. 
obviously we we spend most weeks talking for another hour about things that could be said and we still haven't exhausted the the conversation so um you know, if someone else out there wants to take up the the deepest cut podcast, by all means, you know, we probably would be edified by that. We would by, by that as well. But um, I'm glad that we have this opportunity to talk about those things. And um, you know, First Peter four twelve to nineteen will be preached again, probably Lord willing, at Mercy Hill at some point. Well, it will be preached in two weeks, actually. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. I'm going to yeah. be a guest preacher in, speaking of uh, suffering for the name of Christ, a church nearby us that is leaving a mainline denomination, a liberal denomination, and they're suffering for it mm. because they're, they're Christians. Mm -hmm. And I want to encourage them with this sermon, with this text, that they are blessed. That's another Amen. word I didn't get into. It's one of my favorite biblical words, uh, makarios, or blessing. Um, the blessing comes, which is to say, we begin to experience life as God intended it in this fallen world, when we're most closely aligned with Jesus and the, and the steps that he walked. And that's what this church is doing. Mm. And I think they should expect, uh, they're, they're going to pay a big financial price in leaving the denomination, but they should expect far, far greater rewards than anything they could ever pay. Mm. An earthly coin. Yeah. Um, and I'll be pray praying for you in that sermon, but for our brothers and sisters there too. I'm thankful for the witness that they're showing to the people in that area of the state. And um, yeah, I don't know how that will be received generally. I don't think it'll move the needle much until people realize what that actually means. And then it, will move the needle a lot, mm -hmm. I think, I fear, in a good way and a bad way. But um, one last thought here, because you just made me think about it. Um, one of the things that I am taking away from this sermon, Phil, is um, kind of the encouragement in advance of suffering that we see, meaning we know that mm. when this suffering comes, right, we are to expect it, it comes with blessing, right, from the Lord. So that would then encourage me, and it should hopefully encourage all of you who are listening, to not be so fearful, or to shudder, or to shy away, or to hide, or to pretend like you're not a Christian, or to not speak up if given the opportunity, the Lord presents the opportunity to you, because it comes with blessing, so there will be suffering. It's not like it, it negates the suffering altogether, but, um, you know, I think oftentimes when I think of suffering, it's usually in, in hindsight, in retrospect, like how, how did I suffer well? Or I, I might be in the midst of the suffering and I'm compl complaining about it. And I'm not talking just only about Christian suffering, but, you know, suffering in general. I think rarely am I actually praying about and thinking about suffering before it befalls me. And in this case, I find great hope and encouragement for the suffering that does lie ahead. Because I know that with that suffering, there, there is joy. And that there is blessing. And that I shouldn't be caught off guard 
you know. So this speaks to, I think, every believer, no matter where they are, um, in regards to their suffering for Christ's sake, whether they're in the midst of it now and find encouragement with this, but then even for those of us who might not be experiencing, you know, Mr. Fire, fire Trial has yet to knock on the door, at least today or this week. Um, when he does, don't pretend like you're not home. Amen. Any, we we certainly have gone over. I don't know. Yeah. I've lost track of our time. Um, my my little alarm went off a little while ago, just as a small indicator. So I know we're, we're definitely um, kind of overdue to wrap things up here. But any any other thoughts? No, I I think your your final thought there was where we should end it. It was really good, Tim. Thanks, thanks. Um, I look forward to picking up First Peter in a month time or so. So we're not going to take a break, hopefully, from the podcast. I've I've asked my fellow elders if they would be willing to... I don't have anything on the schedule yet, but nice. I'll be reaching out to you, Will, this week, if you're listening, to see if we can... Um, Set up a time. Twist some arms to, to join us. Well, he's, to talk a, about. he's a teacher, so he has nothing to do in the summer. Oh, I know. I know. He's just sitting around drinking pina coladas in his pool, I'm sure. Right. Um, but no, Lord willing, we'll be able to grab some of my fellow elders to uh, to join us to talk about their their sermons as they, they come about over the next several weeks. Maybe someone else can uh, host me and I could be the... There you go. <laughs> that would be a real big lift. But what is what is the week that you're preaching? Uh, I don't remember the... 20, is 23rd? 23rd, is. okay. Yeah. Yeah, so a little less than a month away. I have some work to do. I have some work to do. And my life has not gotten less complicated in the past two weeks, no. as we've already noted. So pray for me in that, if you would. Um, but thanks, everyone, for tuning in this week. Uh, I hope that it has been a blessing to you and you've enjoyed the conversation. Um, I'd encourage you, and I'll be praying for you, with whatever trials God might bring to you today or in the coming days, that you would be blessed um, in the midst of them and by them, that God would use them. Remember that you are united to Christ, and we have hope now because of that. Um, and so we pray uh, you would be blessed, you would enjoy the rest of your day, and uh, we hope to be back with you again next week on The Deeper Cut. Thank you.